This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for choosing this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget to subscribe to get brand new episodes every Thursday. And if you want to hear more about a particular subject, why not check out our curated playlists by category on the podcast page of the English Heritage website. From castles to collections, black history to blue plaques, there are plenty of stories for you to connect with. Today, though, we're connecting the past and present in a rather unique way as we examine the history of coronations to coincide with the crowning of King Charles III and Queen Camilla. Our guests are English Heritage Senior Properties Historian Dr Stephen Brindle and Head Historic Properties Curator Dr Jeremy Ashby. Welcome to you both. Hello, Charles. Hello, Charles. It's lovely to be back with you. Thank you both for coming on. Let's uh, talk about this global context of coronations then, because we are an international podcast with a global audience, and we can sort of zoom out of England and take a world view on this entire subject. So how far back into history, Jeremy, do we have records of leaders being officially recognised in their new roles? We've got records that go back a very, very long time, but I should say that the records can only tell us a fraction of it. And I'm absolutely sure that if we could look back into the mists of time where we can only see very imperfectly, there will always be some kind of ceremony in which the leader of a tribe or a state or whatever stage of civilization we got to is actually taken through a rite of passage in which they stop becoming one type of person and they become officially another type, the ruler, and this is recognised by the people over whom they will be ruling. I think that this is going to be a constant in all types of society, in all periods of history and prehistory, all across the world. We know that inauguration ceremonies are not peculiar to this country, they're not even peculiar to Christendom. All types of society do them. And to answer your question, in going back to history, they do go back a very, very long time. So in ancient Egypt, from even earlier, even before 2000 BC, we know that new pharaohs would be inaugurated as pharaohs with festivals and ceremonies. And these would include ceremonial headgear types of crown, the red crown and the white crown united as the double crown of the two kingdoms, which, you know, starts to sound a little bit like the kind of coronation that we would recognize today. Kings of Persia likewise wore ceremonial headgear. But the one that I particularly want to point out is the Old Testament kingdom of of, of Israel or Judah, where kings, as is documented in the Bible, go through a ritual. And this is important to mention because it's something that's actually going to come up in later coronation rituals, even down to the coronation of King Charles III himself, that the biblical account, particularly of the way that King David became the king and the way that his son Solomon succeeded him as king is actually critical to the whole thing. We know that the important part of the inauguration of those kings wasn't actually the putting of a crown on the head, although crowns are mentioned in the Old Testament of the Bible, golden crowns, but that actually they would be anointed with holy oil 
by a prophet or a representative of the priesthood, making their person in some senses sacred, that their person is marked by a specific relationship with God, and that this is critical to their role as new ruler over the people of Israel. And we read about this in the second book of Kings, for example, and in the first book of Samuel. So that's very, very important. It goes a long way back. And that has a long line of of other events that have been picked up on by other societies. They don't all take the same form. So Roman emperors, for example, didn't wear crowns. They were recognized as ruler by the Senate. And, you know, they wore laurel wreaths, but they didn't wear golden crowns. Crowns, however, do then appear a little bit later. So holy Roman emperors, the Emperor Charlemagne was crowned on Christmas Day 800 in St. Peter's in Rome by the Pope. And the kings of France take this up particularly. And as we'll be seeing, that has a particular direct line to what actually goes on in England after the coronation of 1066. So broadly speaking, across thousands of years of human history, human recorded history, that is, there have been anointings and placings of objects on heads, certainly, over that period, a long period of of, of time. So sacred making, effectively. Sacred making and a certain number of things that later become prominent. We can also see evidence for them quite early. So in some early depictions, it's not just that there's some headgear on the head, but also objects that you would hold. So an orb, this is something that I think goes back to imperial precedent, a round object that actually symbolizes the idea that this person has a rule of the globe, you know, over, over the earth, and a rod, a scepter or something to be held in the other hand. These things do seem to have quite a long ancestry, and we'll be seeing them in the English coronation ritual as well. Can you speak to what forms these ancient ceremonies might have taken? It's really rather difficult to say where they they would be. But I suspect that one peculiarity that we see in the English ritual is actually fairly common about it. And this is something that I know Stephen's going to be talking about quite a lot when we we actually get into the English ritual, because there are a number of components to it. I've already talked about the anointing ceremony, that there is a religious ritual involved, and these things take place in places of, of, of sanctity. But there's also something legal that has to happen because actually there needs to be some kind of recognition that the person who's going to become the ruler is a legitimate person. And that's something that actually needs to be symbolized within the the ritual themselves. And actually the question needs to be asked of other people watching, do you accept them to be the king? And they say yes. And quite often there is also a party that follows afterwards. And that's something we'll be seeing too. So all of these things may take very specific forms, but I suspect that some element of them would be common to rituals, you know, in other times of history and in other places. I think also what's an interesting point is that from a human condition perspective, there are people who in the population are leaders, and I presume few of them in the ancient world, 
And then there are others who want to be led and they are quite happy subjugating themselves to someone who has leadership qualities, has uh, power, prestige and, and and all the rest of it. Well, There's something in the human condition that is willing well, to be subservient, I suppose. Discuss, because I suspect that there will be other people that will disagree with that. But the one point that I would certainly say is that within the ritual of the English coronation rite, there is an element of consent that actually comes into it. And as we'll be seeing, a very key moment in the ceremony, which has been actually a little bit difficult at some points in history, is that actually there has to be an acclamation that people who are going to be ruled over actually have to participate and they have to say, yes, we accept that this person is going to be our ruler. To that extent, they are involved in the choice of the person. Yes, and then the ceremony follows on from that and and all the other trappings of the authority in the title itself, I suppose. Exactly. It's a, it, it's a hurdle that has to be, or a gateway that has to be gone through before anything else can take place. Indeed. If we shift our attention back to England and this Anglo-Saxon period, when the first kingdoms were being formed, how are the leaders of these areas officially anointed, Stephen? Well, Charles, the first Anglo-Saxon kings were pagans, and we don't know if they had crowns or anything like a coronation ceremony. And the king who was buried at Sutton Hoo in Suffolk, who may have been Redwald of the East Angles, he was buried with a richly decorated helmet and something that may be a scepter, but there was no sign of anything like a crown. The earliest references to we have to uh, Anglo-Saxon rulers being anointed rather than crowned, because these are simple references in the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, are to... Offa's son, Egfrith, being anointed as king of Mercia in 785, and Eadwulf as king of Northumbria in 795, and we don't know if a crown was involved in either occasion. Um, Charles, I think it's, it's worth saying, in relation to the point you made about um, submitting to a ruler, I don't think the idea of being ruled by a legitimate ruler would have been understood in that sort of way by people in historic societies at all, really. I mean, I think you have to think of this in the context of societies being organised in extended family groups, in clan groups, in a tribe being seen like an extended family. And when transmission by inheritance, dynasty and family was an enormously important aspect of society. And at the micro level, that would be reflected in the organisation of households. At the macro level, it was organised by recognising a ruling dynasty. And societies were organised along the sort of dynastic principles, principle of household organisation reflected at the level of a state. And I don't think people would have seen it as being an unnatural thing. Households had a head, a kingdom has a head. And in this kind of way, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms certainly started to anoint and crown their rulers once they'd become Christian. And our historic understanding of this becomes a lot clearer in the 10th century, when the Kingdom of Wessex, the one kingdom which was left standing after the Danish invasions, united England under Edward the Elder and Athelstan. And we know that several of the 10th century kings of the House of Wessex were crowned at Kingston-upon-Thames, And this is probably because Kingston is on the Thames, it's on the border between the historic kingdoms of Wessex and Mercia, that Mercia had submitted to the House of Wessex and the Kingdom of England had uh, had really come into being. And we know that Athelstan in 925 and Deadwood in 946 and Ethelred in 979 were all crowned on the coronation stone at Kingston-upon-Thames. 
which was probably inside a church at the time. The church collapsed in the 18th century. The stone was saved for a while. It was used as a mounting block. This was Georgian Britain. And then the 19th century, it was sort of placed on display with sort of railings around it in the middle of the marketplace. And the coronation stone is still there. But it's, uh, this does actually seem to be true. That was where in the 10th century, English kings were anointed and crowned. But oddly enough, the only coronation ceremony from this time, which we have detailed knowledge, is the one which didn't take place at Kingston. In 973, King Edgar was crowned at Bath by Archbishop Dunstan, by St. Dunstan. And this is the one of which we have a slightly more detailed record. And we know that he was crowned and invested with regalia. And we also have the earliest surviving English text for a coronation ceremony in a document called the Leofric Missal, which is now in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Uh, and this probably dates from around the same time. It's a manuscript probably produced in France, but it was written for an English cleric. And it includes the Latin text for a number of ceremonies, including the coronation of a king. And so that's the first version we have, which includes some of the elements of the peasant coronation ceremony. So you, we can say quite legitimately that the earliest text for a coronation ceremony is from the late 10th century, and that the ceremony that King Charles will, will go through is directly descended from this. So it really is over a thousand years old. The last Anglo-Saxon king, Edward the Confessor, was crowned at Winchester, not at Kingston, Winchester being the ancient capital of Wessex, and his great seal, he's the first English king for whom we have a great seal, but crucially it depicts him seated on a throne, wearing a crown and holding an orb and scepter. So although we don't know when all these elements appeared, by the time of Edward the Confessor's coronation, we know that it included anointing, crowning with a crown and an orb and scepter and being seated on a throne. So you can say that all of the essential elements had arrived. It's also worth saying that under the later Anglo-Saxon kings, there were other ceremonies called crown wearings, which we know Edward the Confessor to have done and the early Norman kings did. And that is they held courts at Christmas, Easter and Whitsun at which they would appeared crowned and robed before a great gathering, before what the Saxons called the Witten, which was really the, the gathering of the political nation, the bishops and the great lords, the great thanes. And the early Norman kings, that became the great council, which is really the ancestor of the modern House of Lords. So there were crown wearings at which the royal chaplains would sing the Laudes Regii. They'd sing a, an anthem of praise to the king, and the king would appear crowned and holding the regalia. So there was a certain context for the use of the regalia there. And so all this has appeared by the time of the Norman Conquest. Well, obviously, um, the Anglo-Saxon period ends with the Battle of Hastings in 1066, that famous English date, which everyone should know from school. But uh, we move on now to Norman England coronations, and we come back to Jeremy with the next question. So how did the coronation ceremony change after William the Conqueror's victory at the Battle of Hastings? Well, as Stephen has said, in some senses it doesn't change because the ritual that they used is still basically the version of the Anglo-Saxon kings from the late 10th century onwards. The Norman kings adopted that ceremony. That said, the feel of the whole thing must have been immensely different because, as you've rightly said, the Normans had 
killed the last Anglo-Saxon king, Harold, at the Battle of Hastings, and substantial numbers of his followers, and had had a very uneasy few months of circling around London with quite a lot of violence, actually, before taking control of the capital, before London is submitted to him. The coronation goes ahead in Westminster Abbey, and we will say a bit more about the venue in a minute, but it takes place on the most memorable date of the most memorable year, Christmas Day, 25th of December, 1066. And we do know a certain amount about actually how that ceremony turned out, which is, I have to say, not entirely to the good. And it comes back to the point that Stephen and I were discussing a little earlier to do with consent, because the report that we most get about the coronation of William I is about the moment of acclamation, the point about whether the king actually is acceptable. Now, we know that the coronation itself involved uses of both the English language and of French. So there has to be some idea that not everyone involved inside Westminster Abbey was a Norman, was a supporter, that there would be some English people involved about this as well. And at the moment of acclamation, when the archbishop asked the people, do you accept that William is your king? A great cry of yes went up, at which, according to some chronicle accounts, the Norman soldiers outside the abbey thought that a riot was in progress and thought that actually it was all going terribly wrong. And one consequence of this is that actually they reacted, they overreacted with extreme violence, actually setting fire to a number of properties around the place. And actually this did turn into the full-scale riots that they thought might be going on. And William the Conqueror immediately withdrew out of London for his own safety. And one consequence of this, it's interesting to note, is that it may be immediately after this that actually the construction of what we now call the Tower of London, the great Norman castle, actually takes place because William realises that actually he's going to have to take great strides to make sure that, that he and his supporters actually will be safe. So to that end, that starts off, what I have to say is it becomes something of a tradition of coronations not going entirely according to plan. Are there any other examples of medieval coronations post-William I that didn't go smoothly? I'm afraid to say that there are, and I don't want to make almost too much of a joke about this, because actually sometimes the consequences of what happens at a coronation can be terrible. We talked about the riot that happens for the coronation of William the Conqueror. And there's one other instance, actually, about 100 years afterwards, where you know similar terrible things happened. In, in 1189, at the coronation of Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, Famously, a riot started at that coronation, which had terrible consequences when Jewish members of the Jewish community in England wanted to come in to Westminster Hall to pay their homage to the king, who was their master and their protector, and were violently thrown out by people attending the king. And this actually sparked off terrible riots all the way up and down the eastern seaboard that culminated in the massacre of the Jewish community of York at Clifford's Tower. So, you know, that's another one that's gone terribly badly. But there are other instances in which the actual ritual comes into problems. I remember reading a long time ago that in the middle of the 12th century, the coronation of King Stephen, 
there was disagreement between two groups of musicians, the singers of the Royal Chapel and the Benedictine monks of Westminster Abbey actually were singing two different chants over the top of one another, causing chaos. There's um, one really sort of amazing one that, that I'm reading about for all of this, the coronation of King Edward II, it's probably in which pretty well anything that could go wrong did go wrong. And it gives something of a flavour of actually how different historic coronations could be to the military precision that we will be seeing for King Charles III, that overcrowding inside the abbey got so terrible that actually mounted soldiers riding on horseback actually were required to actually keep the crowds back. And apparently at the moment of acclamation, Edward II and his Queen Isabella managed to get through it okay. But actually to the background noise of shouting congregation, of neighing horses and blaring trumpets, actually just trying to keep the people under control. And the riot, I can only call it a riot, within the church actually got so bad that a wall inside the abbey collapsed just before the main part of the ceremony happened, and a knight was killed. A knight, it must be said, who the Benedictine monks of the abbey didn't like very much, and actually they were quite pleased about this development. But nevertheless, I mean, it sounds truly awful. And I could go on, there are plenty of others, but the serious points, I suppose, have to be made that sometimes, you know, it doesn't even actually get as far as a coronation. I think we have to acknowledge that there have been two instances in our history, one of them in the Middle Ages, where two kings, both of them called Edward, have never actually even got to their coronation. Edward V, one of the princes in the tower, famously disappeared. And in fact, the person who was crowned when he would have been was his uncle Richard III in 1483. And of course, in a more recent modern history, Edward VIII, of course, abdicated before he could be crowned as well. I must also say there's one occasion as well where a coronation didn't happen in Westminster Abbey. That's in 1216, the coronation of the child Henry III. That coronation had to happen in Gloucester because at that time, the southern parts of England were in the hands of the French, including Westminster Abbey, and the ceremony of the king had to take place in a part where the French hadn't got to in the west of England, in Gloucester Cathedral. Yes, and for people who don't know Gloucester, that's in the county of Gloucestershire, which is in southwest England, uh, kind of along the River Severn. Fascinating one there, 1216 Henry III, and the Edward II one as well. I mean, were there actual horses within Westminster Abbey, sort of, that's an astonishing image, isn't it? It's an astonishing image, and I mean, something that we'll talk about a little bit later about fitting up the Abbey, that... There had to be temporary structures actually placed within the abbey, both for the congregation and also for the royal party themselves. And one of the things that that I know they did on successive coronations in the Middle Ages was build a very tall scaffolding type structure. It's a bit like a wooden bridge in a sense that had got a high elevated platform on which they could place a throne for the king and possibly a throne for the queen so that this acclamation could take place where people could see them. You've got to lift them up physically and place them up high so that everyone in the church can see. And one of the descriptions of this is that it had to be high enough that the barons could actually ride underneath this on horseback, which we'd always thought, well, that's just nonsense, until actually you read these descriptions that actually talk about horses inside the abbey. So, yes, it genuinely did happen, which is very different, of course, to the, the feel of coronations in later periods. 
Absolutely, seated at ground level. Well, let's look at um, the various elements of a royal coronation that we recognise today, starting with the venue, Westminster Abbey. For any listeners unfamiliar with London, where is the Abbey? When was it built? And why was it chosen as the coronation venue of choice, Jeremy? Okay, well, Westminster is now within the city of London. In fact, you can't, there is no distinction physically as you walk around the streets from when you actually pass from being in London to being in Westminster. But historically, actually, they were separate places and there was space between them. If you you can can visualise a map, the River Thames runs, generally speaking, east to west through London, with the city of London on on its north bank and Southwark on its south bank. But to the west of London, it suddenly turns and starts running north-south. And it's just as it's gone round the corner that you actually get to Westminster. That's on the west. So if you're looking at a map, that's on the left bank of the River Thames. And it's immediately on the riverbank that actually a whole complex of historic buildings now stands and actually has stood since the 11th century, the Palace of Westminster on the riverbank itself. And then just inland from that, Westminster Abbey, the traditional setting for the coronation. Now, you asked for a a bit of history, and famously, the history of Westminster Abbey is an immensely long one. As with so many other things, its origins are actually a little bit mysterious. There seems to, to have been some kind of church dedicated to St. Peter on that site, since the days immediately after the conversion of England to Christianity by St. Augustine. We know that Ethelbert of Kent and his nephew and Bishop Melitus were involved in the foundation of that church. But for our purposes, its history really comes into focus in the reign of King Edward the Confessor, the penultimate king of Anglo-Saxon England, who dies in 1066, because Edward the Confessor actually redevelops both the Palace of Westminster as the premier royal residence and the Abbey Church next to it as a formal Benedictine monastery under royal control. And there's always been a very close association between the Abbey and the Crown. In fact, you know, we think of it as the Royal Abbey, and that's what it is. Edward the Confessor in the 1060s rebuilt Westminster Abbey. Now, much of that church No, in fact, nothing of that church actually can be seen above the ground. There are archaeological traces of it that have been found, particularly in the 20th century. So we know a little bit about it. And there are a few elements of 11th century buildings that actually still do survive around the cloister on the southern side. But we know a little bit of this church. And what we know tells us that it was actually rather different to quite a lot of churches of Anglo-Saxon England. It was bigger, more monumental, and built in a style that actually had quite a lot of similarity to buildings over the sea in Normandy. This shouldn't really be a surprise. Edward the Confessor actually was known to have very, very strong links with the Normans. And one suggestion that's often made is that if you want to imagine what that church would look like, you can actually go and visit some surviving buildings over in Normandy, and particularly one ruined abbey, the Abbey of Jumièges, that's often been claimed to be the prototype for Westminster Abbey. It was a big, long, rectangular building, and some sense of it, actually, if you have a look at the Bayeux Tapestry, that actually has a depiction of Edward the Confessor's first abbey church 
at Westminster, there's a scene actually showing the funeral of Edward the Confessor, and it gives a, a rather rather attractive cross section of the view. It's a long aisled church with a central tower and with an eastern apse at its end, and certainly quite a quite an impressive monumental building. So why was Westminster Abbey then this coronation venue of choice? Is it just the fact that um, Edward the Confessor sort of started a work that was then carried on by the Normans after they took over? Well, that's part of it. But of course, the important thing is, though I said it's separate from London, it's only about a mile away from London. It's a very convenient place to be. And London, as a very large city, it's an important place to be. But in a sense, that wasn't the obvious choice. Winchester, which had ties to the Royal House of Wessex would have been a perfectly sensible place for this to happen, or it could have happened in York, for example. But no, Edward the Confessor's precedent, I think, you know, having been taken up by William the Conqueror, and I think we may argue, you know, was William trying to make some sense of continuity with the Anglo-Saxon period, certainly by using the same ritual that the Anglo-Saxons had done. I think you can make a case for that. And that set the tradition that that's where they would be. It's also important to note that Edward the Confessor, having been buried in the Abbey, that also starts this this sense which will come up in, in later centuries for the Abbey's ties to the monarchy, also including as a royal mausoleum. But particularly the fact that Edward's tomb was there is something that comes to have great consequences, particularly from the 13th century onwards, when King Henry III, the one who'd actually been crowned initially as a child in Gloucester Cathedral, when he comes to to manhood, he particularly gets interested in the idea of Edward the Confessor. He wants to really promote Edward the Confessor as the royal saint, as it were. You know, one of, as it happens, Edward the Confessor was not the only king in England that had ever been made a saint. But nevertheless, he was a quite good one to think about. And Henry III puts quite a lot of interest and resource into promoting the cult of Edward the Confessor. And in its most tangible form, he takes down Edward the Confessor's church and rebuilds it in a much larger and more modern style. And that is substantially the Westminster Abbey that we know and love today. Ah, I see. So Henry III's Westminster Abbey is the one that King Charles III will be crowned in, effectively. Yes, and all others. Okay, I mean, it's a building that Henry III actually hadn't finished it. He'd managed to, he, for example, hadn't built the nave that follows on at the end of the 14th century. But I think Henry III would recognise the building that we have now. And many of the aspects of the structure and decoration of the Abbey actually do come to play roles in the coronation. First of all, I think it's, it's important to describe Westminster Abbey, and we'll be seeing it on the television for the coronation. But It's a building that's very unlike quite a lot of other buildings in England. It's very tall, very narrow. It has quite magnificent, large windows with quite complicated window tracery. That's the pattern for the design. And the models for this are very clearly on the continent of Europe and specifically from France. And I am very happy with the suggestion that that I think many architectural historians would be happy with now that actually when looking for a model for this grand new building, Henry III fixed his attention on one particular building, Reims Cathedral, or Reims Cathedral if you want to pronounce it that way, in France, the Coronation Church of the Kings of France. Why would Henry do this? Well, in essence, because the King of France was Henry III's greatest rival, 
Sometimes they actually go to war. Sometimes they are very amicable and at peace. But Henry III, I think, is always measuring himself against what the King of France is doing. And in Westminster Abbey, he wants to have something that is as great as the coronation church that the kings of France have. So things like the window tracery, the ground plan of the building with a curved eastern end with a walkway and ambulatory around the outside and with radiating chapels. This is something that's copied really very, very closely from that church in France. The decoration itself, however, is slightly different and one would have to hope even more splendid than its French prototype. And there's whole things that we can say about that, about the stained glass, about the use of the royal heraldry in various places. But one particular aspect of the decoration from Henry III is going to play a very important role in the coronation. And this is the floor, the pavement of one particular area, the sanctuary just in front of the high altar, which is this absolutely spectacular 13th century pavement of a type of construction that we call cosmati work. It's a mosaic, but it's not mosaic in terms of little cubes laid out in, in a design. It's actually different shapes of cut stone. So it's actually, it has technically the name opus sectile. And the stones are of porphyry, which is purple, serpentine, which is green, set in a very complicated geometric pattern within a matrix of Purbeck marble. And we know from actually an inscription that used to be around the outside of this, that the workmen for this had actually come not from France, but from Rome. Henry III had probably got hold of them, actually with the help of the Pope, and that they had come over to England and laid this amazing pavement in a pattern that actually was very close to what you would see if you go and visit some of the great pilgrimage churches actually in the holy city of Rome itself. So that's an amazing thing. And the Cosmati pavement in front of the high altar will play a very important role in the coronation of Charles III, as it has done for many other coronations, because it's on that that the actual moment of coronation takes place. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, I like the uh, merging of sort of the artistic and the theatrical all told through sort of stone, effectively. Well, I hope Stephen would agree with this, that theatre is actually an appropriate term to be used for Westminster Abbey in all its periods and for coronations in all its periods, but probably one of the best terms that you can use specifically for Henry III, a king who really takes a great interest in what he looks like at all times. This idea of physical theatre, how, how does this play out in the early coronations at Westminster Abbey, you know, from William the Conqueror through to Henry III and after? Well, it's different actions, but it's also the physical backdrop in which this takes place. And I mean, unfortunately, there isn't a great deal that we know about for the coronations of the, you know, of the 12th century. It's really only when the present Westminster Abbey comes into being that actually we get a very good sense of this. But it is immensely complicated. And I must say at this moment that what I've been saying so far is what I, I hope is accepted as, as the present state of knowledge. But there are actually there are quite a lot of quite complicated details around the way that different parts of the Abbey work that actually we're still arguing about even now. Who was present and who was in what place, at what stage of the ritual? That's always something that's, that's actually takes quite a lot of work, work lot, lot, a lot of working out. Mm. Charles, I think when one one thinks of this as theatre, I think it's uh, it's well to remember that it's um it's a religious ceremony, 
and that the sanctuary of Westminster Abbey, like the sanctuaries of all great churches, was designed for religious theatre, for liturgy, and was in very regular use before the Mass, where the host is elevated as the as the bread becomes the, the body of Christ and the wine becomes his blood. I mean, that is an, an act of religious theatre, and a coronation is a religious ceremony, which in the Middle Ages took place in the context of a Mass. It came either before or after a Mass, and for the monks of Westminster, they were accustomed to using the sanctuary for religious theatre and the kind of robes which were worn, another subject we'll come on to, might be described as, you know, the, the costumes for a particular kind of theatre. But it's, uh, it's religious theatre. It's a very elaborate liturgy and it's a religious ceremony. So it should be seen as theatre in that kind of a way, not, not theatre in the modern, perhaps the modern sense of the word. Yes, of course. It's just a, an acting out of people in a place, effectively. The stage is, is Westminster Abbey, in a way. So yes, I understand what you're saying there. A major feature, though, of this act of coronation is the throne that the new monarch will sit on or, or sits on during the ceremony. What can you tell us about the throne that King Charles will be sitting on or will have sat on, uh, depending on when you listen to this podcast, Stephen? King Charles will be crowned on the uh, the coronation chair in Westminster Abbey. It's a, a remarkable, unique object. It's a carved throne of oak in Gothic style, which was made around 1297 by a carpenter called Walter of Durham for King Edward I. And it was made for a very specific reason. King Edward had invaded Scotland. He was trying, ultimately unsuccessfully, to impose English overlordship on the Scottish crown. He was trying to impose John Balliol, his candidate, as king on Scotland, and the Scots didn't like the idea. But in the early stage of this campaign, Edward invaded Scotland, he conquered a lot of the country, and there was one an object of great symbolic importance to the, the Scottish nation. It was called the Stone of Schoon. And this was a stone kept in the Abbey Church at Schoon in Perthshire, on which Scottish kings were crowned in the same way that the Anglo-Saxon kings had been crowned on the coronation stone at Kingston-upon-Thames. And Scottish kings from the 11th century on had been crowned seated on the stone of Schoon. And uh, Edward seized it and took it back to London in 1296. And it's thought that the coronation chair was made in order to house it. And initially, it was um, the Stone of Scoom, in effect, formed the seat. Later on in the 17th century, a, a wooden platform was made to go above it. So although it sounds as if the coronation chair was made for this very specific purpose, there was a certain context to it, a context to the idea of thrones, which was, um, again, as, as much ecclesiastical as it was secular. Bishops sat on thrones. The Latin word for throne is a cathedra. So the definition of a cathedral is a church in which a bishop has a throne. And there are a number of splendid medieval bishops' thrones, like the great one in Exeter Cathedral, which survives in the Middle Ages. Oddly enough, the tradition of bishops' thrones is rather more clearly established in, in European art history than that of royal thrones. But there are examples of purpose-made thrones in great royal halls. I mean, there's one in Arkham Cathedral, a marble throne there, which is uh, thought to have been a seat on which the emperor could watch liturgy in the church. And the most important English precedent is that there was a royal seat at one end of Westminster Hall, immediately adjacent to the abbey, 
there was a marble seat and there was a marble table in front of it. Fragments of the table have been found. And this was the, the seat at which the king sat to preside over great meetings in Westminster Hall. So there was a certain context for the idea of a fixed throne for a king. But the coronation chair was made for this purpose to house the Stone of Schoon. And Edward thought that by bringing it to London, this would sort of symbolise the King of England's overlordship over, over the British Isles and, and over the Crown of Scotland, which, of course, didn't turn out so well as it, um, <laughs> as it happened. Hmm. But the Stone of Schoon itself, which is spelt S-C-O-N-E, so almost like yeah. how you'd pronounce Scone. Scone or Scone, but, yeah. the, but the Scots say Schoon. Is that underneath the, the wooden seat of the current throne? Well, it isn't anymore. The chair has some arms and it has a tall back and originally it was decorated with painting of a king resting his feet in a lion and panels of glass mosaic. But most of that's got worn off. So what you see when you look at the chair now, it looks, it's oak with just traces of gilding and paint on it because most of the decoration has been worn away and, and people have carved their names into it over time. It hasn't always been treated very respectfully, but it had the stone of schoon under the seat, but visible through Gothic tracery panels until 1996, when it was removed from the chair by decision of the government, by decision of the Prime Minister John Major, and taken to Edinburgh Castle. And this, of course, was the 700th anniversary, I think, of Edward I taking the stone from the schoon. And John Major decided, as a, a complimentary gesture towards the Scots, that the stone would be removed and taken back to Scotland, not to schoon itself but to Edinburgh Castle. You see, Scotland also has its own crown jewels. There's a crown and a sword of state and a scepter, which are very old. I think they all date from the 16th century. And for a long time, they were concealed in Edinburgh Castle after the Act of Union of 1707, and they were rediscovered in the 1820s. And so there's a treasury, there's a, a jewel room in Edinburgh Castle, where today you can see the honours of Scotland, as they're called, displayed with the Stone of Schoon. So it's gone back there. But at Schoon itself, the abbey disappeared in the 16th century. And there's now there's a great country house called Schoon Palace, which is the seat of the Earl of Mansfield. We bring Jeremy back in for our next question about uh, the uh, development of coronation ceremonies and associated regalia, including crowns, scepters and other symbolic objects, which you've already touched on. How have these changed over time? Are, are, they, are there any that have remained constant? Yes and no is the answer to that. Now, what we're talking about now is the class of objects generically that we would call the crown jewels or sometimes also talked about as the regalia. And there's a long list of objects that historically have been used even going back into the Middle Ages and will be used for King Charles's coronation. So as you've rightly said, crowns are an important part of it, but there are other things as well, orbs and scepters, but there are other items of vestment and, and, and other forms of personal adornment, if you like, that only really seem to feature in coronations. So there's objects called armils, which are a kind of hinged bracelet to be put on the arm, for example. That's another one. There are spurs that, that feature in the coronation, though not necessarily actually to be worn on the feet, but to be offered at the altar. And there are swords as well that are carried in procession, including famously a sword with no point called the Sword of Mercy or Kurtana, 
these are all parts of the of the splendor of, of the ritual and they many of them have quite complicated meanings but the important point that i think i'd like to make is that there's a great division in english history as all will know it comes in the middle of the 17th century with the execution of king charles i and the brief period in which actually having a monarchy was abandoned and that a commonwealth existed under Oliver Cromwell. And famously, that came to an end in 1660 when the people decided they'd had enough of that. They wanted a king back, thank you very much, and invited King Charles's son, Charles II, Charles Stuart, to come back and become the king. In the meantime, the medieval objects, some of which were likely to go back to the 13th century or maybe possibly even older, most of them had actually been got rid of. They'd actually been destroyed under the parliamentarians who who wanted away with these baubles. They wanted nothing. The only medieval object that had survived was, of all things, a spoon. Although, as it happens, it's a spoon probably with a very important role in the coronation, a spoon that was used for the anointing of the monarch with holy oil. And that actually seemed to have survived, and it's a 12th century object. All the rest of the most important items had gone, and so new ones needed to be made. And the central object for the coronation is one particular gold crown that we call the crown of St. Edward, St. Edward's crown, supposedly by its name, the crown of Edward the Confessor. Well, it isn't the crown of Edward the Confessor, It's the successor of the crown of Edward the Confessor, if you like. And we know that it was made in 1660 at the time of the restoration of the monarchy. And that is the crown that will be used for the moment of coronation, but only for that moment. It will then be taken back, I think, placed on the altar of Westminster Abbey. And when other crowns will be used, principally the imperial state crown, which is a much lighter object of a, of a framework encrusted with diamonds and other precious stones, that is the object that King Charles will use for the remainder of the ceremony and for riding back to Westminster Abbey. So it, it's a long and complicated thing, but essentially what we are now dealing with is replacements from the 17th century and later of objects that actually were used in the Middle Ages in order to give the same kind of feel, but the medieval objects had been lost. What happens in the coronation ceremony itself, Stephen? So far as the, the actual form of the service is concerned, there's a remarkable degree of continuity. People sometimes like to claim that royal ceremonial is all a sort of modern 19th or 20th century invention. Actually, certainly as far as coronations are concerned, this really isn't true at all. The text of the coronation ceremony, the earliest version we have, says the Leofric Missal from the 10th century, and there are a number of subsequent versions but the English coronation ceremony settled in its final form as long ago as 1308 in the version produced for the otherwise rather disastrous coronation of Edward II, as Jeremy's told us. So the basics of the text go back to the late 10th century. The text in more or less its present form in Latin goes back to the early 14th century. There's a manuscript held by Westminster Abbey called Liber Regalis, and there's a text of it there. It was uh, translated into English for the first time for the coronation of James I, and it's more or less that text which has been used, that English text which has been used ever since. 
Now, until 1661, that is Charles II's coronation, all English coronations were originally prefaced by a long procession the day before from the Tower of London through the City of London to Westminster, and the king would stay the night at the Palace of Westminster and be crowned the next day. And Charles II was the last king to be crowned with a a long procession through the the city prior to his coronation and that was discontinued by James II in 1685 and has not been reinstated and in the 18th century there was just a short procession on the day on foot from Westminster Hall through the Abbey and since the coronation of Queen Victoria though the procession has started at Buckingham Palace so it's been longer and that was done deliberately in the case of Queen Victoria's coronation so as to allow many more people the opportunity to see the procession and feel that they'd in some way participated. Now, once the actors in the ceremony have taken their place in the Abbey, all coronations since 1308 have followed more or less the same sequence of events, but they can be filled out with other things like music and interludes. Charles uh, III's coronation, we are told, will take a little over an hour. Queen Victoria's lasted five hours, giving an idea that it really can be stretched out quite a lot. But in essence, what happens is this. When the members of the processions have taken their place in the Abbey, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Earl Marshal, he's the Premier Peer of England, the Duke of Norfolk, ask the people, well, their representative in the Abbey, whether they accept the prince as their king or queen, and the congregation shout out their assent, the acclamation. And it was this sudden burst of noise that alarmed the soldiers outside and caused so much trouble at uh, William I's coronation in 1066, as, uh, as Jeremy said. After the acclamation or the recognition, it's sometimes called, that is the recognition that the, this individual is, is the rightful heir and will rightfully be crowned, there's the offering. The ruler then approaches the altar and makes an offering to the church. In the Middle Ages, this was often an altar cloth and a gold ingot weighing a pound. And the king then kneels and the choir sings the tedium laudamus, uh, we praise the O God, specific anthem. And I think Jeremy's going to talk more about music and coronations later. And then the archbishop gives a sermon. And then comes the oath. Now, if the acclamation represents the people recognising the king, the oath really is the sovereign reciprocating, swearing to rule wisely and well. And there's a series of questions put by the archbishop to the ruler. Will you observe the laws and customs of England? Will you keep peace with the people and the church? Will you ensure that law, justice and discretion be maintained? And the sovereign swears an oath to do these things holding a Bible. And of course, it's not just for England now, it's for the United Kingdom. And after the oath comes the most sacred part, that's the enthronement and anointing. The sovereign is, uh, who's up to now been seated on a different chair, or there'll be a pair of chairs for the king and queen. Then the sovereign is enthroned on the coronation chair, and there's the consecration or anointing with chrism or consecrated oil. And this part of the service take place under a canopy. In the past, it was always deemed too sacred to be witnessed by the crowd. And at Elizabeth II's coronation, this part wasn't actually filmed for that reason. And the archbishop, assisted by the dean of Westminster, pours the oil from the ampulla, which is a gold vessel shaped like an eagle, into the coronation spoon, which Jeremy's just referred to, that 12th century spoon. 
and medieval times the kings were anointed with oil on the head, hands and chest. And later this was changed to the head, hands and inside the elbows and on the shoulders. But latterly it's been consecrated, simplified Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth II were simply anointed on the head and hands. So there's the anointing underneath a canopy. I think I've seen that this will be filmed this year, but uh, we'll see. And then there's the investment with the regalia. The sovereign is invested with this long list of objects, which Jeremy has referred to, and the order in which the sovereign receives them has varied over time. But a number of the objects are presented, really, like the spurs, and then there are three symbolic swords, the sword of spiritual justice, the sword of temporal justice, and the sword of mercy, or the sword kirtana, which are presented and which are are held unsheathed upright by people as the king is crowned. It's worth saying, actually, that those swords date from 1627. They were made for Charles I's coronation by an Italian smith called Zandona Ferrara, and so those two actually do survive from before 1649. And the sovereign is presented now with spurs, a symbol of knighthood, and receives the armils, which are hinged bracelets, is then presented with a glove by the Lord of the Manor of Worksop, a somewhat uh, specific requirement, which I'm not sure is going to be repeated this year. We'll see where the Lord of the Manor of Worksop figures, but he always did in the past. And then the sovereign receives the most symbolic objects, the orb, the scepter with a cross, the scepter with a dove, there were were two scepters, and then the culminating moment of the service, the archbishop blesses the coronation crown, takes it from the high altar and places it on the sovereign's head. After this, the sovereign is fully robed in cloth of gold, and is with his or her hands full, the orb and scepter and other things raid on the altar. The sovereign is blessed by the archbishop, and then there is the homage. The main actors in the ceremony and representatives, members of the coronation, pay homage to the new ruler, and the new ruler then takes Holy Communion. And then the service concludes with recessional anthems and a procession out. So those are the essentials of the service, but we're told that for King Charles's, it will be a little over an hour, I think. We'll, we'll see on the day. Queen Victoria's took five hours, but her service was unrehearsed and a little chaotic. What happens after the coronation itself? Is there some sort of gathering? There certainly is. There, there always was. Way back in the 10th century, King Eadred, AD 946, crowned at Kingston-Hontens, withdrew from the banquet because he was lured there by women, by a mother who, who wanted to present her daughter to King Eadred for the sort of reasons that uh, that you might imagine. And the thane said, where's the king gone? And St. Dunstan had to go and upbraid King Eadred and drag him back to the banquet. We are told, I'm uh, slightly unseemly royal coronation anecdote. In the Middle Ages, there was always a coronation banquet, and indeed coronation banquets, which were always in Westminster Hall, were held right up till George IV's coronation, which was really the coronation to end all coronations, with a total budget of £248,000, of which 25000 was spent on a banquet in Westminster Hall, at which 1,800 people sat down to eat another 
2,400 people sitting in specially made galleries watched them eat, but apparently some of the spectators let baskets down to their relatives who were actually dining and sort of put, put chicken wings and things in for them to haul up in the basket. And that went on for about three hours. The highlight of the coronation banquet was always the moment at which the king's champion who was always a member of the Dimmock family, the lords of the manor of Scrivelsby in Lincolnshire, the then hereditary king's champion would ride into the hall, fully armoured, on a horse, and the Earl Marshal and Lord Chamberlain would ask if any man challenged the sovereign's right to be true ruler, and the king's champion, in armour, on horseback, would throw down his gauntlet and offer to meet anyone who challenged the king or queen's right in fair combat. Fortunately, no one ever took them up on the challenge, uh, as far as we know. And all of this happened up till George IV's coronation, at which point the then Dimmock Lord of Scrivelsby was sort of about 70 or something, so his 21-year-old grandson, I think, fulfilled the role instead and apparently fulfilled it very well he, there, were, there were pics of him doing it but then William IV thought this was all ridiculously extravagant and he had a, a much more economical coronation which cost about a tenth as much and so the whole banquet was cut and has never really been reinstated but instead afterwards there have been uh, coronation lunches that might sound rather modest in comparison but actually in 1953 there were so many guests at the queen's coronation there were over 4000 people in the abbey and the queen i think very understandably felt she had to entertain all of them there were about five or six coronation lunches at buckingham palace afterwards in order to entertain everyone so although the formal banquet no longer happens the entertainment has nevertheless been on a fairly grand scale, as you might expect. The whole thing sounds very grand and complicated, I must say, and there's been lots of permutations over time. Music, of course, is another thing that we should talk about. Jeremy, the final element of coronations that we haven't yet discussed, are there traditional anthems that have stood the test of time that uh, people will recognise when Charles III is crowned? There are, Charles, and I think we can be very confident that for King Charles's coronation, there will be a combination of old and new music, which is certainly the kind of thing that we've seen at all coronations in, in, in the modern era. I mean, sadly, we don't know a great deal about the music for coronations in the Tudor period, and that's a great pity because that's the time when we know that there were composers of, of particular talent and celebrity involved in the Chapel Royal. We can only guess at the kind of music that they would have put together. We know quite a lot about music from the 17th century onwards. And right up until the present day, some composers from that period and from the 18th century have featured in more modern coronations. So there will almost certainly be some music from Henry Purcell, who famously composed some of the best music for the coronation of James II in 1685. That was a coronation of particular splendour coming fairly soon after the restoration of the monarchy under his elder brother Charles II, after the rather dull period of the parliament when flashy music in church was definitely not allowed. And in the 18th century as well, particularly the coronation of George II in 1727, a number of coronation anthems were commissioned from George Frederick Handel, and Zadok the Priest, a truly magnificent piece of music that really builds up the anticipation because it has a, an introduction 
that seemingly lasts for an eternity until the choir actually comes in and sings the piece. That's become a firm favourite, and I'm sure that will feature in King Charles's coronation as well. But it's a long tradition of coronations that actually commissioning some of the best music that we have, and we know a lot right through the 20th century, all of those coronations featured some of the best composers of the era. C. Hubert Parry wrote a famous anthem, I Was Glad, and I believe that Parry is a particular favourite of King Charles's, so I can pretty well, I'm pretty certain that that will feature within the coronation as well. But it, 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 it's undoubtedly going to be a wonderful experience, both to take part in and to listen to. We often associate uh, church services with organs and choral singing, but will we have other musical instruments and players? We will. I mean, oh, there's an orchestra that will be involved as well, I think, conducted by Andrea Papano. But uh, that's also something of which there's quite a long tradition. So the Handel and Purcell music that I spoke about before, that doesn't work with just choir and organ. You actually also have to have you know, full orchestral string accompaniment. And the information that we have at the moment about King Charles's coronation is that the tradition of commissioning new music will take place. Judith Weir presently holds the past of master of the king's music, but we know that an anthem has also been commissioned from Andrew Lloyd Webber, Roxana Panufnik as well, another eminent composer of the period. I think there are 12 completely new anthems that are being commissioned. We know as well that this coronation will have a slightly different feel because King Charles was for such a long time the Prince of Wales. There's a, there's a certain Welsh tinge to this. So Bryn Turvel, the baritone and the harpist Alice Hughes will be taking part. And I believe that part of the service will actually be conducted in the Welsh language, which is certainly a first for coronations. And there will be a chant in the Greek Orthodox tradition in memory of the late Prince Philip, King Charles's father. But as well as these new elements, I think the long tradition will be present. So Handel, Parry, Elgar and William Byrd. We've talked a lot about the origins of the coronation ceremony, but if we turn our attention to those that took place during the 19th and 20th centuries, how did things evolve then, Stephen? Well, Charles, coronation ceremonies may have followed the same set order, but the occasions have actually varied greatly in style and organisation and approach, and so the ceremony has in its way reflected changing times. George IV's coronation in 1821 was certainly the most extravagant ever. It was over £238,000 spent, including £44,000 just on uniforms, robes and costumes. And that really was thought to uh, perhaps a little excessive by some, certainly by George IV's successor, his brother William IV. And his coronation in 1831 only cost £30,000, which some thought to be too little, and it was divided as the half-crownation. Now, Queen Victoria's coronation in 1837 was a sort of compromise between the extremes, and hers cost £70,000. And one major development was there was a longer procession, starting at Buckingham Palace, and the route was lined with scaffolding so that as many people as possible could watch. And over 400,000 are thought to have taken advantage of this. So one positive aspect there was there was more public participation, but the ceremony wasn't rehearsed, and there were several points in which it seemed slightly chaotic, and it took five hours. Now, Edward VII's coronation in 1902 saw a change of approach, and I think the lessons of 1837 were learned, really. A committee was set up, and the ceremony was meticulously planned, and there was a magnificent programme of music. And Edward VII's coronation really formed a model for subsequent ones in 1911, 1937, and 1953. 
There was an, in each case an element of public participation with processions from Buckingham Palace to the Abbey, long routes through the Abbey and back again. There were coronation dinners for poor Londoners. And in 1902, 1911 and 1937, the Queen was crowned immediately after the King. Queen Elizabeth II's coronation in June 1953 was planned over 14 months. It was probably more carefully prepared than any previous event. And there were two full dress rehearsals. The Queen took to wearing the imperial state crown when going about her daily business to get used to the feel of it. And there was a long route over five miles through the West End for the procession so that over 96,000 spectators could watch. And furthermore, it was televised. The coronation was watched by about 27 million people in Britain alone. It was the first event ever to be live streamed from the United Kingdom. And there was an enormous procession with over 29 servicemen and women. So the Queen's coronation in 1953 involved new aspects. And in each case, the coronation has been subtly updated. And there's little doubt that King Charles's coronation will reflect changes in contemporary culture too. As we wrap up our discussion then, how closely do you think King Charles III's coronation will resemble that of William I at Westminster Abbey 957 years earlier? We'll start off with Jeremy answering first. Well, obviously, visually, it will look completely different, and it will take place in a different language, and you know, with um, all of the paraphernalia of modern life involved in a in a building that didn't even exist in William's time. So, to that end, I mean, obviously, you know, completely different. But I think you know, both Stephen and I have tried very hard to stress in this podcast that actually the coronation is something that's got roots that go a very, very long way back. And to that end, it is quite remarkable that something, you know, lasting nearly, you know, a thousand years, actually there are very distinct strands of continuity that run all the way through it. So while I think all the, the specifics would be completely unrecognizable, I think there is still a sense in which actually this is a ritual that actually is 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 the logical successor of of some of those that have gone before in an in an unbroken chain a chain broken only for one very brief moment that actually goes back all of that far so there are elements of continuity about it but what do you think stephen well really the coronation of william the 1st is is perhaps not the one i'd have gone for charles it's having been uh, as you've heard a notably difficult and, and not really very successful event but uh, as Jeremy says, the ceremony has uh, has evolved over time, but in essence, it remains recognisably the same ceremony as was used for Edward II in 1308 and with roots in that which was used for King Edward in 973. I think King Charles III's coronation will quite strongly resemble those of 1902, 1911, 1937 and 1953 in the setting, in the aspects of public participation, in the procession, and in the sense that the crown, the monarchy, wants the nation to share in it as much as possible. And lastly, we will ask this question because um, some people may access this podcast just before the coronation takes place and other people may get it as it sort of passes into history. But um, what are you both most looking forward to seeing or even hearing uh, during the ceremony? 
Well, I mean, I am a particular fan of music. And in fact, I mean, well, <laughs> I have nothing to do with Westminster Abbey. I did used to sing in a, a cathedral choir when I, was, when I was a boy. So actually, just to hear the new music that will be commissioned, I'm particularly looking forward to that. I also, much as I would love to have modern cynicism, I'm absolutely a sucker for a grand spectacle of any kind. And I think we can be pretty confident that there will be a lot of rehearsal going into this. And as with some previous occasions in, in recent history, they aim for a very high standard in the military parades, the processions and the general sort of choreographing of the whole thing. And I hope and pray that it goes very, very well. I'm quite confident that it will go very well and that actually this is something about which I do feel a certain sense of national pride about it. So just one final general thing that I'd like to say is that, you know, for my whole life, coronations have been, in a sense, something of a theoretical thing. It was my parents' generation as children who watched the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. For both my mother and father, this was their first experience of television, in a sense. I think my mother's family actually got a television for that occasion, and they had people round to come in and watch, you know, for, for the first time. So it's been a theoretical thing. And actually to see this made real, I think that is immensely exciting. I've been reading and hearing about this my whole life, and now we're actually going to experience it. Stephen, what are you looking forward to most? Oh, Charles, I'm really thrilled that I'm actually going to witness one of these, these ancient ceremonies which go back so long and which ties to the deep past of our own country. As we know, are the royal household and our armed forces and the Church of England do great ceremonial, as Jeremy has said, superbly. The funeral of Her Majesty the Queen last year was superbly choreographed and conducted. And I think it is a matter of, of great national pride that the United Kingdom can still do this kind of thing and, and still does it so well. I'm particularly looking forward, I think, to hearing I Was Glad by Parry and uh, Zadok the Priest, and most of all to the moment when the Archbishop places the coronation crown on um, King Charles's head. I, I think, um, yes, God save the King. It'll be a great moment. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll hear about the history of how people made their mark with graffiti at historic sites across the country. In the past, it wasn't seen to be naughty, but it is now. Although we don't want you to touch it because it can damage it, the fact that it is there, there's something really special about that. You're standing in the same moment that that person was in the past. Thanks for listening. See you next time.